Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is the audio news magazine. Uh, it's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is uh, Sunday, uh, August the 20th, uh, 2023. Uh, we are broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again uh, to another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Later on in our program, we'll be coming up with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on widespread opposition to a Western-backed military intervention in the West African state of Niger. Also, Tanzania and China are strengthening their cultural exchanges. We'll have details on that as well. The African youth uh, structures are discussing continental lingua franca, and Mozambique is investing in greater power supplies. In the second hour, we look in detail at recent developments in Niger, uh, where the people are resisting Western-backed intervention in the uranium-rich state. Also, South Africa is preparing for the upcoming BRICS summit later in the week. We'll have a briefing uh, from South African President uh, Cyril Ramaphosa. Finally, we continue our month-long focus on Black August with a review of the legacy of anti-slavery fighter John Brown. These and other issues will be discussed uh, during the course of our program, so stay tuned. Uh, we'll take our musical interlude uh, with the Le Amazon d'Afrique uh, from the album entitled Republic Amazon. Let's listen in.
Mulina, 
Don't be near that 
Welcome back, and uh, that was Le Amazon d'Afrique, a electrical musical band, a women's-led band uh, from various countries in West and Central Africa. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast for this Sunday, August the 20th, 2023, and we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. And right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. And these are some of the lead stories in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. Burkina Faso and Mali deployed military aircraft in Niger on Friday in response to any potential military intervention by the economic community of West African states, ECOWAS. Niger's uh, national television reported Friday night that Burkina Faso and Mali have deployed fighter jets and helicopters in the country to, quote, respond to any form of aggression against Niger, unquote, from ECOWAS, a regional bloc comprising 15 West African nations. It also said that military leaders from Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger convened on Friday in the Nigerian capital of Niamey to decide on, quote, concrete measures, unquote, in case ECOWAS chooses to, quote, escalate a war, unquote, during a press briefing after a two-day meeting of ECOWAS defense chiefs in Accra, Abdel Fattah Moussa, ECOWAS Commissioner for Political Affairs, Peace and Security, said that if a peaceful resolution to the recent coup in Niger could not be found through other means, a standby force is prepared to intervene in Niger at any time. Abdurrahmani Shiani, uh, the former commander of Niger's presidential guard, declared himself the head of a transitional government last month after President Mohamed Bazoum was ousted in a military coup. Leaders of soldiers uh, who ousted Niger's Western-backed president said Saturday night that they will return to the country to civilian rule uh, within three years. General Abdurrahman Shiani uh, gave no details on the plan, saying on state television only that the principles for the transition would be decided within 30 days at a dialogue to be hosted uh, by the junta. Quote, I am convinced that we will work together to find a way out of the crisis in the interest of all, unquote, Shiani said, commenting after his first meeting with a regional delegation seeking to resolve the West African nation's crisis. The delegation uh, from ECOWAS bloc headed by former Nigerian head of state General Abdusulami Abubakar, also met separately with Tapo President Mohamed Bazoum. It joined reconciliation efforts by Leonardo Santos Simayo, the United Nations Special Representative for West Africa and the Sahel, who arrived on Friday evening. And in other news uh, taking place, uh, on uh, the African continent, the China Communications Construction Company Limited, Tanzania office, the CCCC, 
Senior Representative Zhao Zhenyuan and uh, the University of Dar es Salaam Deputy Vice Chancellor responsible for postgraduate studies, Danatha Tabuwa, uh, shook hands at a signing ceremony of a cultural exchange and cooperation agreement in Tanzania on August the 18th. Uh, China's Communication and Construction Company Limited Office and the Confucius Institute at the University of Dar es Salaam in Tanzania on Friday signed a cultural exchange and cooperation agreement aimed at promoting cultural integration between China and Tanzania. The agreement was signed between the CCCC Senior Representative Zhao Zhenhuan and the University of Dar es Salaam Deputy Vice President responsible for postgraduate studies, Danatha Tenbuwa. Speaking before the signing of the agreement, Tubua said the agreement will not only promote friendship and cooperation between CCCC and the University of Dar es Salaam, but also between China and Tanzania. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, uh, the 25th session of the African Youth and Governance uh, Convergence has taken place. Young people from 27 countries, uh, Canada and the United States of America, have petitioned the African Union to impress upon member states to adopt Swahili, French, and the English languages as lingua francas in Africa. The languages must also be integrated into schools' curricula for teaching and learning to become contact languages apart uh, from the native languages. A communique adopted at the end of the 25th session of the African Youth and Governance Convergence at uh, Mankisim in the central region on Friday said the three languages were the most dominant across the continent. The study of the three languages will expand one's views of the world and limit the language barriers and communications across uh, the continent. Mr. Ernest Kwaku Morte, uh, the session's vice president, said, apart from entirely uh, changing one's traveling experience, it would help the brain to nurture, learn, and understand new languages. And uh, finally, in the southern African state of Mozambique, uh, the electrical company EDM and the hydroelectrical de Caborabasa, the HCB, the firm that operates the Mpanda Nkua hydroelectric project, have signed an agreement uh, on the allocation of more than three million U.S. dollars in funding. The Mpanda Nkua project in central Mozambique has a projected capacity of 1,500 megawatts and includes a 1,300-kilometer high-voltage transmission line that is set to be the country's second-largest hydroelectric facility. With an estimated budget of $4.5 billion, it will be constructed downstream from the Caborabasa hydroelectric plant. The project is expected to enhance Mozambique's role as a regional energy hub and support electricity export. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And concluding uh, this segment of our program, the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Uh, since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of 
some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go to our website, and that is at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-African journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-African journal. That's to listen to uh, the pan-African journal, a worldwide radio broadcast over the pan-African radio network. To read uh, the Pan-African Newswire, you need to go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we'll take a break, and we'll be back with more of our program for this week. I, 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 
And that's uh, Hastings Street Music uh, from Detroit's own uh, John Lee Hooker with a track entitled Peace, Love, and Man. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, August 20th, uh, 2023. And uh, we are broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit, and we've been covering extensively the unfolding political and security situation in Niger and throughout the entire West Africa region. We want to listen to a analysis of uh, the situation involving Niger in regard to the threats uh, by the United States and France and NATO, uh, utilizing uh, some leaders uh, within the economic community of West African states uh, over uh, the transition of the political process uh, in the West African state of Niger, a uranium-rich and gold-rich uh, nation in the Sahel region of West Africa. Let's listen uh, to this report. Well, Niger's military leaders have announced plans to prosecute the deposed President Mohamed Bazoum for high treason and undermining the security of the country. The President was arrested last month after his uh, democratically elected government was toppled in the coup. In a statement read out on national television, the army spokesman said, They've been gathering evidence against the deposed leader and what they claimed were his local and foreign accomplices. In any event, the government of Niger has to date gathered the necessary evidence to prosecute before the competent national and international authorities the ousted president and his local and foreign accomplices for high treason and undermining the internal and external security of Niger following his exchanges with the nationals of foreign heads of state and heads of international organizations. Well, let's take uh, a look at the economic impact uh, of these coups uh, having in the region with various sanctions imposed on Niger. Uh, many are asking, what is it for the foreign interests, the Western interests? Should the continent be thinking of tilting towards the West or towards Russia? And looking at the problems that this may cause for the region. Dr. Onoha Nachi is my guest tonight. He's an infrastructure economist as well as an energy and finance expert. Good to see you and thank you uh, very much, uh, Dr. Thank Nachi. You. Well, we, we try to stay on this because uh, we've been on this uh, for you know, weeks now because mm-hmm. whatever happens in one part of, uh, of the continent affects the, the, the entire continent. And uh, we've been talking about political so- solutions. <laughs> uh, religious leaders have weighed in on this. As an economist, we are yet to narrow it down to that, do you, what, what do you see uh, about this coup and how it does affect any of these countries? Uh, thank you, Suleiman, and uh, thank you to our Nigerians. The, what happened in Niger uh, did not start from the country. Uh, it's something that emanated globally. It has been a Cold War which has been between the Western nations and the the new allied nations, which is Russia, China, and and, and coal, the BRICS nation. There's been a cold war between these two nations, and uh, they begin to fight this war in different dimensions from technology points and then to energy points. But what is currently going on, and uh, it's an energy war. It's, It's an energy war. Energy war. Energy war. 
is a war between the, the Western nation and the new allied nations, which Russia and China is leading. It's a war of control of uh, resources, also between the, 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 the two groups. So this has been on uh, over time. And if I want to really dive more in, in, into it, I will take it back as, as far back as 2014, 2016. Uh, during the major exploration of the, uh, the oil, and which has led to some supremacy battles between this, this, this block of people, and that alone has a major impact to, to, to deal with. So, looking at it from that point of view, it's a war that the Western nations is fighting for the liberation of Europe from Russia and Benjamin, because they have been so much dependent on Russia over time. So this battle is what led to the Ukraine war. And it's another replica of Ukraine war that is going to take place in Africa, if we don't stop it, because it is resources that, that, that is the matter. And I'll take you to a more detailed analysis about it. And don't forget, i also bring it back when we talk about if we don't stop it, the we here. Yes, okay. if we don't stop it. The, the, the energy war started when... Russia constructed the Nord Stream 1 and 2, which was a major supply of gas to Europe. And this pipeline existed for a long time. If you remember, this pipeline passed through Ukraine, which was part of the Crimea, uh, Crimea area. And because Russia was constantly paying that passage fee to Ukraine, and they just decided one day in 2014 and took over the Crimea area, the waterfront, and so that the pipeline could pass. And Europe did not do anything about it. They felt, okay, this has reduced our gas, gas price. Okay. They clapped for themselves and they were happy about it. Because at that point in time, it they was all benefited. beneficial to, yes, yes, to Europe. It was beneficial to them. So that continued and until Russia decided to expand and crush more into Ukraine. And then I said, hey, hold on a second. We didn't know you were going to go this far. And then it became this war. And if you realize that, at the beginning of the war, once, once the war just started, it didn't take up to six months. The Strawan pipeline, which is what Russia invested almost $20 billion, got blown up. And Russia suspected the U.S. on the other hand, and that affected uh, the, the, the U.S. Uh, that affected the Euro gas supply. And with that effect affecting the Euro gas supply, Europe began to look for an alternative to gas supply in, into their nation. An alternative, how can the entire Europe gas pipeline be fed? And that became a concern. You know what it did that was very fantastic? If you recall, in 2006, during the uh, passenger period, the Transara African gas pipeline was fully completed in design, and the full studies was done, and it was satisfied that this gas pipeline is economically viable. 2006. That satisfaction was done. It was done on September 2006. The final, I have a report of that. I read through it a little bit, and I understand what was contained in that. And this gas pipeline was supposed to pass from Wari all the way into Europe, passing through Nigeria. Nigeria had about 1,200 1, kilometers of feet. The total distance to be covered was about 4,100 kilometers. So this is the gas pipeline. It passes through Nigeria, and passes through Niger, and then passes through Algeria and enters into Europe. So, before this war, this project was dead. Before Ukraine war, this project was dead. And Ukraine war started, the Europe came and 
built a relationship among these three countries, Nigeria, Niger, and Nigeria. And they came back to reactivate this contract. They came back to reactivate this contract in July 2022. The three ministers of petroleum all attended an event where they signed that. And then Russia now said, okay, where is this gas line going to pass through? It's going to pass through Niger. No, 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 no. We have to stop it. We just have to stop it. And Russia has laid this plan over time. It's not, it's not something new. They knew that the resources of Africa is between West Africa and Southern Africa. So they have, if you look at the series of coups that have happened in recent times, it's a complete bridge blocking that coast from the top of West Africa all the way to East Africa. It closed. You started from Sudan, which touches the Horn of Africa, and it takes it down to Mali, it takes it down to Guinea, it takes it down, and now we have, we have this. So that blockage has been created. So the question is, how would gas get into Europe? And Russia has said no. And by this, not only did they say no to it, they've also said no to uh, the second source of energy sources, because the three core energy sources to Europe now rely on fossil fuel, which is oil and gas, rely on coal, which they have blocked through South Africa, and rely on what? Uranium, which the J is the third highest supplier of the world and has the highest, best quality in the world. So what else could they do? If you block that place, this, so when I make that definition and say that it is an energy war that is going on, and it is a Cold World War Three that if not stopped, well, again, we'll still come back to it if, if we don't stop it uh, yeah. and explore the we there. But again, I, I want to look at the energy war Whoa. and the Cold War you, you just highlighted. Mm -hmm. What about the France, you know, involvement in all of this? Because uh, you've just spoken about Russia. And again, we'll also come back to the Wagner Group. But again, some have said that this, again, points to uh, France. You, 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 anybody looking at it from the point of France is, will, will not understand it fully, to be from the point of myopic point of view. Because if you look at it from the point of France, it means you're only considering the uranium. Uh, since Niger got independent, mm -hmm. since Niger got independent, the French government established two mining companies in Niger, since independent, they established two mining companies in, in, in Niger. These two mining companies control over 90% of the uranium mining in Niger. And these two companies is owned by a company called Orano. Orano is a French government-owned company who owns 60 and above percent of these two companies. So the mining of uranium automatically goes to France. And that's why you hear this general saying that, for every three bulbs that is lighted, in, in, that, is, that, is, that is on in France, that one is coming from the uranium from Niger. So, looking at it from the point of France will be very myopic because it goes beyond France. It's the same establishment of the war in Ukraine that is going to happen in West Africa, in this sub-region. Because the war going on in Ukraine, the two blocks, the two blocks, the Western Bloc and the New Ally Bloc are testing their powers there. So a new venue is about to be created, which is Niger. And you're thinking about, nobody should look at this as just a Niger war. Because the five countries that are under military rule has made a pronouncement. If you try this, we are part of it. And 
understand that most of these coups that happened in these five countries were carried out by mercenaries, contractors, military contractors. They were not done by these military people you see holding the office. They were tactfully executed by a military contractor. Who controls the military contractors of the war? We know about that, Russia, such as the Wagner Group and, 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 and all that. So it's far beyond that. So before we get to shopping it uh, quickly here, let's uh, just uh, a little bit of uh, statistics here. Kazakhstan is the largest uh, uranium producer in the world, uh, which has a production volume of uh, over 21,000 metric tons. Yeah. And Nigeria has uh, just uh, about 5% of world mining output. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, with a, a, a production output of 2,000, over 2,020 metric tons. No, they do 3,000 uh, now. Uh, so it's, it's been up, upgraded yeah, to 3,000. That's what okay. they do. Uh, and right. they, there's something you need to pay attention. The, the entire mining in Nigeria happened in a region called the Agadez. And all the major highways in the entire country leads to that region called Agadez. Every other road outside going to Agadez is a bad road. It's not looking good. It's abnormal. And Agadez, in part of Agadez, called uh, Alta. Alta has an airport, and more like an airstrip. But that airstrip is as busy as anything. And that is where the U.S. has domiciled their drone sites. And what is that drone monitoring? So you will look at it that how could the France be a, a French company be excavating uranium and the U.S. company is the one providing military coverage and you tell me it's only them that benefit from that. Um, no, it doesn't work that way. So in your analysis, uh, you have... Is there resource you, control you, you have Wagner Group, uh, which, which is a Russian mercenary uh, um, and of course, uh, you have uh, Europe, uh, one part of Europe, mm -hmm. specifically France. What's the place of the United States in this? Because the United States, ha you know, has been speaking about uh, the coup in Niger. The, the uh, United States has a military base. Uh, as of my last check, that military base has uniformed military officers, about 1,001, domiciled inside there. And they are where? Located in Agadez. Where this solid mineral called uranium is located. So you can feel this, you can feel the entry. And if you have 1,001 military officers that are domiciled there, and you converted it to a drone base, and the non military people, we don't even have the statistics to say, there may be up to 2,000 there that are, that, that are, that are there. So it, it, is, it is a drone control base for the U.S. Army, for the U.S. military across West Africa. So why would they be there if they don't have an ally with France? It is that relationship with France that put them together. But, and you know they are partners But, but, but again, trade. for Africans, uh, sorry to cut you there, Dr. Onoha, uh, for Africans, why would ECOWAS, why would the AU uh, allow this uh, to happen to the continent if truly this is some kind of energy war that should benefit the continent? You, you see, what, why, th this is very interesting for me now. This is the first time where Africa... Is being, will be treated as a beautiful bride. You have two suitors. Before, we only have the Western world. Whatever aid they offer, we take it or otherwise. They offer the aid with the left hand, take small resources with the right hand. Now, we are having two suitors. And this is saying this, this is saying this. This is the time for the African leaders to sit back and reevaluate. And the condition. Do, do you think anyone is saying anything? It looks like ev everyone is just saying. Uh, get out of Niger, and, uh, uh, but it looks like, again, uh, no one is saying 
be in charge of your natural resource. But that should be the focus. And that's what I, I want to have. And that is why I want us to go back to AU, uh, which is the overall body of the continent. How can they truly help harness the potential of our natural resources? Okay. Cobalt is, yeah. the, is the main major cause of the strife in Congo. You, you know one thing? Most African nations don't engage into mineral beneficiations. They just take it, sell it as it is. You can quote this, put it on record and check it. Even the uranium that is being taken out of Niger is only 5.5% that is paid back to the government of the total value of that. So how do you want it? And these new people that orchestrated this coup is saying, enough of this. Instead of we getting this 5%, we want to own everything, we decide what we'll give you. This is part of their grudges. And what I need African leaders to think about is how can we do enough mineral beneficiation? Take a typical example, lithium, which is the, the whole dependent of solar, is on lithium, solar storage systems and everything. The, 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 the electric cars that we drive and we mention about, without lithium, it can't function. And that mineral, even as we speak in Nigeria, we have over 27 deposits, commercial deposits that are viable in Nigeria. It has not been touched. It's just a little bit. So what an African leader should do is how to take ownership of this mineral resource. I just gave you an example. The one in Nigeria we are talking about. The two French companies have been it from independence. And their parent company, Orano, is state enterprise. State government. It's the French government that owns it. And so, who is doing that mining? It's not just a French company, it's the government. And the condition the French nations in Africa got their independence is questionable. It's really questionable. And it's that condition where you, you have independence, but you're still under slavery. Think about where your foreign reserve is domiciled and you borrow against your foreign reserve. Those conditions are not. But what is important and interesting for us to do is how will this change? These young leaders, anybody approaching them and say, hey, hand over to these, you no, understand their grudges. Sit them down and interview with them. Why did you do this? Where are your pains coming from? If you take a statistics of them, all of them that executed this coup is between the date of birth is from 1973 to 1983 or 1993. This is not the first time military, we've seen military incursion in some African countries mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes they go ahead to metamorphose into a democratic, a democratic. Uh, government and they, they stay put in power without also fixing what uh, should be fixed in those countries. It's all about the mentality, though. If these people are sincere and real, most, most times, most, most times, it's just like the current government we have. Uh, they are busy fighting for credibility, for acceptance in the Western world. So they are bound to teach towards them. That is not called for. Call it spirit is spirit. What do I have to please Western world? I have a, a country, an independent country of my own, and I'm a president. So, but what is important for us to pay attention to is how do African leaders take possession of their natural resources? Because this war is resource control. We shouldn't allow two blocks to convert Africa into a battlefield because of resource control. The that, Western that, world and the new allied nations. And that, uh, that's so identified, again, uh, sorry there, uh, that's so identified 
what should be the solution to bringing about uh, some form of uh, calm in Nigeria and the West African bloc? Okay. Uh, this is the fifth coup happening across this block, and uh, Sudan has its work going on. If African Union and West, uh, the West African regional body wants to intervene in, in, this, in this through ECOWAS, they should, for me, is invite these people that executed this coup. Sit them down. We're not fighting you. You're a citizen of that country. You're entitled to the leadership of the country. It's your right. How you got it is what we are questioning. But, okay, why did you do this? We, we all have kids, though. When they act and behave somehow, and through their tantrum, sometimes we sit there and call them back and say, why did you behave like this? You're not supposed to. Why? So if you want to provide leadership, ask that question. When you ask that question, you can say, no, it's not good. Okay, how long can we plan your exit for you? Let's globally, democracy is accepted rulership style. How do we plan a democratic system, an exit strategy for this? Where, okay, in six months or in three months, we set the election timetable. But their grievances must be addressed. When you think you can suppress these things, it's just like Nigeria, we try to suppress NSAC. It's still building, it will still explode. Mostly the hunger that we have in town now. It will still explode. So that suppression should, should, should not be allowed to. You have to hear them out and then provide a solution. And the solution is very easy. Hey, you all that cause yourself big giant that is fighting for the resources. We need the resources to be done in this place. You know what, France, if you're interested in getting more uranium, more uranium, we need a power plant. These people cannot remain in darkness. They cannot remain in darkness. It's just, are they as foolish as ourselves where we have our crude being exported and exported to the other countries in the name of what? IOCs? Sit all the IOCs and say, if you don't have a refinery, walk out of Nigeria. Cancel every country. There's nothing that will happen. It's simple as that. So, we need to create a system where these natural resources is being put in place. And it's only when it's put in place in, in full utilizations in Africa that the benefit in terms of education, in terms of development, in terms of gold health will begin to. Because we cannot be sustaining them. It is Africa that is feeding the world. The world is not feeding Africa. But again, Africa has refused to also feed itself. How? So, because if you look at those who also plunder these resources, the Africans who also collude and plunder these resources. You live in Nigeria, we've seen what people do, the kind of devastation and thievery happening in Niger Delta and so many of these places, and even in the backyards of Taraba. These are Nigerians so, you know, involved. So how can Africa and Africans sit down and realize that now is the time to develop the continent? Okay, see, it is not a case of realizing that now is the time. It is the time. You know, why is, it, why is the time? It, let me give you a typical scenario in Nigeria. In Nigeria, I only tell people who have two, two blocks of people in this country. We have the post-independence and the pre-independence. We have the post-civil war and the pre-civil war. The two mentalities are not the same. You see this new generation that are involved in this coup. They are upright. It's like leadership. Because you are still dealing with these post-independence people who the colonial masters has made them to lose their moral rights, has made them to lose their integrity. They have nothing. Remember who we are, it's about our society. It's about the environment we grew up across around us. 
That's what made us realize. These people grew up with these mentalities of the colonization. Think of it. So these old leaders are different from these young ones. They are never the same. Most of these people that you see that are involved in this group, some of them, if you get, get close to talk to people from those countries and hear them out, some of them schooled in France. And you know where your own classmates, your own schoolmates, begin to tell you, oh, we mine your uranium and we use it to power our plants. We take these resources from... And you're in the same class with that person. Tell me how you're going to feel. If you have a gun to overthrow your nation, you will do it to change it. So there are factors behind it. So we need to come to that point where the leadership will begin to invest the natural resources in the African country. But, but such people can as well know that you can actually form a political movement and not go with a gun. If you school with these people, you understand that those same countries... <laughs> uh, no, no, you chuckle on that. We are actually brought to where they are, not with guns. We, we, when you look at what slavery has done to African mentality, you know, you know, you need to overcome it. And it takes extra force. You, you understand? When you form this political parties. It's just, I don't want to go too far in the Nigeria context. It requires resources. If you want to negotiate them, they are the one that will make the laws that will allow you to strive. They are the one that will head where your party will be registered. They can deregister you. They can buy you. So you. Whatever means you have, that's what those people have used. I'm not saying they are right. But I'm saying they should be heard out. They should be listened to. You can't, you, can't, you can't beat a child and stop the child to cry. You can't push me to fall and determine the direction I'm going to fall to. No. But so, but so far the continent is doing that, doing the listening. Right now, no. I don't feel so. I really don't feel so. Because if the continent is doing the listening, they would not start with that stick part. They could have gone with the carrot. For a coup that just happened on the 26th of last month, you're already threatening war? No. If not, the colonial masters are choking you. If not, the Western world are putting guns on your neck that if you don't do it, you must do it. These people must go. You don't exhaust negotiation. You don't exhaust discussion. We are Africans. So this discussion should have gone on stage by stage by stage. The people the Nigerian government has sent there are military people. Abdul Salam and uh, the Sultan of Soko. These are retired generals. Send a diplomat. Who will sit with them and talk to them? Lamido Sanusi has been there. Oh. And uh, the body of ulamas, they've all, all been there. Religious. And that means a lot. It means. In and Nigeria, and in northern Nigeria. Yes. It, it means a lot. But what I'm saying is, we send a team and you extract so much from it. And whatever you extract, you can... If you're only honest about it, though. The worst thing we have in this current government is... We have a government that is fighting on legitimacy. It's fighting acceptance of the Western world. So if it sees opportunity that the Western world will give them that acceptance, they will jump at it and do anything. And I think that's what is going on. You can't do that. You, can, you can't. But the best you can do is provide our leadership. You're not there to please the Western world. Because this is a war between the Western nations and the new allies. And it is this combination that is happening in Ukraine and is about to repeat itself in West African soil. And the only option we have is that 
we must not allow it to happen. Well, this is a fine place for us to leave it, Dr. Onoha Nachi. Many thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. Welcome back. And uh, that was a discussion on the current uh, security and military situation in the Niger Republic, uh, which has been under threat uh, at the aegis of the United States and France over uh, its transformational government. And of course, uh, this has been a focus of our coverage uh, at uh, the Pan-African, as well as the uh, Pan-African Newswire. Yeah, so we are, of course, uh, here every week, and uh, we've been focusing a lot uh, on the upcoming uh, BRICS Summit, uh, which is to take place uh, next week uh, in the Republic of South Africa. And, of course, um, we are going to have numerous articles uh, on uh, the situation uh, in uh, the BRICS Summit uh, coming up, uh, of course, uh, just uh, next week uh, in the Republic of South Africa. And this summit is going to be key because of the question of the expansion of the Brazil, uh, Russia, India, China, South Africa plus summit is important. It is quite important. And of course, uh, if we are to understand uh, the rapidly developing situation around the world, then we should be, of course, focused on uh, what's happening uh, with uh, the BRICS. Yes. And uh, right now we want to move into uh, a segment on the upcoming BRICS summit in South Africa. The world's attention is on South Africa as it gears up to host the 15th BRICS Summit, a pivotal gathering of five influential nations that could reshape the global order. This event has sparked unprecedented interest from countries across Asia, South America, the Middle East and Africa, all vying for a spot at the BRICS table. Set against the backdrop of a changing geopolitical and economic landscape, this gathering sets the stage for beginning important conversations whose outcomes may be felt beyond the global south. Under the theme, BRICS in Africa, Partnership for Mutually Accelerated Growth, Sustainable Development and Inclusive Multilateralism, the spotlight is on the place and role of Africa within BRICS. So, we ask, what exactly does this summit mean for Africa? Join us as we explore the key issues on the agenda, the likely outcomes, and how these could open a new chapter of collective growth and empowerment for Africa. I'm Penny Nakaribe. Welcome to Talk Africa. Let's now bring in our panel of experts joining in Johannesburg, Professor David Munyai, an international relations and foreign policy expert. In Ankara, Turkey, we have Ovigwe Egwegu, policy analyst at Development Reimagined. And in Cairo, Egypt, we have Randa Hamid, an economist and chairwoman of Occurs Trading. A very warm welcome to all of you and thank you for joining us on Talk Africa. Now, the 15th BRICS Summit in Johannesburg has grabbed global attention like never before. Why is this summit so important? What is its significance? Professor Munyai, let me begin, begin with you. I think this uh, seminar itself, the summit, uh, differs from the rest because 
is taking place at the backdrop of the conflict in um, Ukraine, um, as well as the tension uh, um, among and between the bigger powers um, and other issues that are affecting global order, um, such as climate change. And due to all of the above, uh, a number of emerging countries are also demanding to um, requesting to join our BRICS, uh, and they also talk of the de-dollarization and number of issues that signals uh, a changing world order to a much more uh, multipolar uh, world. Uh, Ovi, we're coming to you. Why is this BRICS summit so important? It's a very crucial summit, perhaps the most important summit uh, of BRICS we've seen since the, the formation started. We really are at a crossroads in terms of you know, global geopolitics and uh, systemic transition. And we see this play out in, in, in several domains, whether it's the economic sphere, people are talking about the need to shift uh, from reliance on, on the dollar to trading local currencies. We see that also uh, in, 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 other, in terms of uh, tackling inflation uh, and looking for economic growth. And also in the, in the security sphere with you know, issues around U U uh, Ukraine conflict. You know, and, 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 some, and issues also regarding you know, great power tension more broadly. So from all of these three uh, perspectives, uh, this summit uh, being a summit where some of the biggest uh, powers in, in the world and emerging markets are, are participating either as, as members or as aspiring members, it means that the summit holds a lot of you know, promise in terms of providing you know, global solutions uh, uh, to these issues. Right, and speaking of global uh, solutions, globally, post-COVID recovery has been slow. And we also have the Ukraine-Russia conflict, which has sent the cost of living skyrocketing. But even more importantly, the build-up to this summit has been characterized by geopolitical contests here in Africa. Professor Munyae looked at together, how do all this make this year's BRICS summit something to look forward to for Africa? I think for Africa, is, this is a golden opportunity. Uh, they will be building upon the Africa Agenda 2063, uh, the need to speed the process of integration uh, through connectivity issues of infrastructure development, uh, requiring uh, massive uh, injections of investments, uh, funding of this infrastructure. Um, climate change, which we have mentioned, is directly affecting the continent, even though uh, the continent hasn't been uh, responsible for the, uh, the destruction of, 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 of the environment. It's mainly the developed countries. And uh, we also are seeing uh, that uh, the continent hasn't been getting a fair share uh, of representation in key and strategic uh, institutions of global governance. Uh, such as United Nations, particularly the Security Council, and all other UN agencies. Uh, Africa is not represented well, uh, with 1.3 billion people. Uh, to consolidate and have a coherent, uh, a strategic, well-coordinated voice, I think BRICS for Africa becomes a great platform to ensure that we uh, head at a global level. And there. Therefore, BRICS is critical uh, for, for, the, for the continent. 
Right. Uh, Rhonda, do you agree? I mean, looking at BRICS and where it's happening in Africa, being hosted by the only African member of BRICS, what's there for Africa to get excited about? You know, we're too big to, to neglect because the BRICS itself, the economy, it contributes around 31.5% of the global GDP, whereas G7 contribute around 30%. And the BRICS countries, they are, contribute 40% of the world population. So I believe uh, we're too big to neglect, and we were not heard before, either in G7 summits or by the Bretton Woods institutions, the W, the World Bank, or the all institutions that are UN-related. We haven't been heard. So I think this is an excellent platform summit to get the African countries and to unleash their potential. We have a lot of potential and I think it just needs coordination and we need to get together, get our voice heard and, uh, and that should reflect on the economic growth of the continent and the countries, of course, in the continent. Right. So the theme of the 15th the BRICS Summit, which gets underway shortly in South Africa, is BRICS and Africa, Partnership for Mutually Accelerated Growth, Sustainable Development, and Inclusive Multilateralism. Uh, Ovi, we're coming to you. What is your understanding and interpretation of this theme, and why is it relevant for Africa? The fact that uh, BRICS and the theme of this year's BRICS talked about mutually accelerated growth, not just accelerating growth because it has to be mutual. We are in the, an interconnected world and, th and that is very relevant for African countries, for instance. Slowdown in, in Asia could mean a slowdown for African countries because they are uh, uh, primary commodity exporters and those uh, factories and industries that, you know, that import their, uh, their commodities may, may cost, uh, reduce supply, uh, their demand because, uh, because of the slowdown globally. So it's very key that the summit is looking at growth from a mutually, uh, uh, mutually beneficial perspective. And then secondly, sustainable development, because uh, that is still a very important issue, uh, particularly in regard to climate and, and, and all of the associated problems that come with, with it, uh, the, the lack of deli delivery uh, and fulfillment of promises made in the last two COPs, and for African countries that are the front line, uh, this is also this is a very crucial issue, and then finally, uh, inclusive multilateralism. That is, in my opinion, by far one of the major challenges that the world is facing today. In the sense that nobody can really nobody can really say the world is, is really able to solve any problem. It wasn't able to solve COVID in a very decisive way. Currently, we are looking at the global food crisis, and see yet uh, leadership, there's a leadership failure in established institutions. So it is very important that new and emerging uh, formations like BRICS take on, take on that, uh, that responsibility to make the world more united, more inclusive, rather than exclusive uh, clubs that lock out other parties. Right. So speaking of inclusivity, some 67 leaders from Africa and other regions in the Global South will be at this year's summit. Professor Munyai, well, this reflects the commitment to multilateralism and cooperation among emerging economies and developing nations. What mechanism is in place to ensure there is harmony in the disparate ideas and proposals they bring to this summit? I think if you look um, at it, you see that a number of countries from uh, different regions will come with their own comparative advantage, not just in the uh, numbers in terms of their population, but um, economic activities, what they produce in that specific uh, regions, and therefore 
BRICS is becoming more and more representative of the entire world. Uh, it's a question of moving with everyone and ensure that you inject um, all different cultures, different civilization, and find best solution coming from all over the world uh, in resolving the crisis that we confront at the global level. Uh, currently, we have hegemonic powers that uh, preach uh, on what the world should be and how they go about doing it uh, without necessarily listening to the others. And therefore, I think BRICS will start uh, opening this conversation uh, for reform of these institutions at a global level. And it is informed by ideas uh, of Bangdang in 1955 in Indonesia. Asian leaders and African leaders met and they discussed how best to cooperate and take advantage uh, to close the gap, technological gap between developed countries and developing uh, cooperation on culture um, and dealing with issues um, uh, that are controversial such as racism um, and different way of bringing a harmonious world. I think that's what BRINGS is bringing on board. Right. Now, this is BRICS Summit has sparked huge interest from countries across Asia, South America, the Middle East, and even here in Africa. Randa, coming to you, Egypt is one of the African countries that have expressed interest in joining BRICS. Why does Egypt want to join BRICS? Okay, Egypt has been, like a lot of the other countries, struggling with uh, high inflation and uh, foreign exchange, currency shortage of foreign exchange, and all that because, of course, uh, the war in Ukraine, and we had a lot of outflow of foreign currency. So we're hoping that by joining uh, the BRICS, uh, we will secure more FDIs, we will build on our foreign reserves, and we will also be able to develop ties with potentially able to uh, open new trading uh, partners and maybe integrate to the world economy. Uh, we will feel that we might gain more voice and bargaining power in international, on international issues. Uh, we will be uh, positioning ourselves and maybe getting more trade, which is uh, essential for securing the foreign currency, foreign exchange, which, has been really, uh, which we have been really struggling with since uh, the world, since the war in Ukraine. Uh, because, of course, we are one of the nations where our trade balance is always in uh, deficit. And so we are hoping to find new channels and more business opportunities. And, of course, that will reflect on the economic growth and on, the, of course, the per capita income and on the people on the, people on the street that they feel uh, the progress in the economy. Okay, uh, Professor Munyaya, coming to you, which other African countries have formally applied to join BRICS members and what do you see them bringing on board? I think they'll bring so much. Uh, Egypt is rich when it comes to African civilization um, in terms of its own culture. Um, it specializes in a number of areas. Um, it's also building a new city, um, energy uh, sector, um, education, I think uh, cooperation with other countries is quite rich. And if you look at the um, AU's Agenda 2063, uh, there is this wish by Africans 
to have a corridor from Cape Town here in South Africa to Cairo. And I think opening that, I think within BRICS, broader uh, BRICS, you are broadening uh, alternative uh, investments uh, in terms of injections in these uh, wish list of Africans in terms of their infrastructure. You'll take advantage of Brazil, take advantage of Russia as well as India and uh, the giant China itself uh, in a coordinated way uh, also with the developed countries, uh, Western world. So it, it's, it's a way in international relation we call that uh, um, back wagoning, uh, taking advantage of the giants um, and therefore uh, if you look, Algeria is similar. Uh, it's quite important. Uh, Population-wise, uh, Ethiopia, more than 100 uh, million people. Nigeria is the giant on the continent. So put together, I think all these African countries will have more to contribute within BRICS as well as move with the rest of the continent. We don't want to leave anyone behind. And what we see happening within BRICS is really to avoid the contradictions that are at a global level. We are criticizing Western countries of being too elitist, and therefore within the global south, we also have to avoid uh, having BRICS countries very elitist and leaving the rest of the global south behind. All right. On that note, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we will continue our discussions on the upcoming BRICS summit. Stay with us. Welcome back to Talk Africa. So with me in Johannesburg, we have Professor David Munyai, an international relations and foreign policy expert. In Ankara, we have Ovigwe Egwegu, a policy analyst at Development Reimagined. And in Cairo, we have Randa Hamed, an economist and chairwoman of Orcas Trading. Right, so it, it looks inevitable that BRICS will have to expand to accommodate countries expressing interest to join the bloc. Ovigwe, coming to you, does BRICS have the criteria for admitting new members? And if not, what sort of criteria do you have in mind? A criteria that encourages inclusion as opposed to exclusion? There really are several issues to consider. One of them is if the, block, uh, re, uh, if, uh, if the formation really wants to transform itself into a membership organization, and in, 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 in that way, some, some, uh, some arguments are put out in, in regards to how, what the criteria should be, whether countries should whether to have the format like the SEO where there's an observer status given and then there's a, there are partnership uh, members before you, uh, before you become a full, uh, full, member, uh, full member of, of BRICS. Uh, but overall, whatever the modality would be in terms of the process, I think the criteria has to be, we have to go back to the original intention that led to BRICS in the first place. The fact that uh, there are some issues regarding the current structure or, or global economic structure in particular uh, that, the, that, that is unfavorable to emerging, uh, emerging countries and emerging economies 
And to overturn the system, you have to create a better system through political and security cooperation, uh, economic colla collaboration, standard setting uh, in, in current, uh, in present and new areas of you know, e economies and technologies and all of these issues. So one of the main uh, uh, factors that I think needs to, be, needs to be considered has to be a revisionist mindset. Because if a country wants to do, it works with business as usual or the status quo, then its membership in BRICS is largely useless because, it, because we, we need to see that transformation, transformational I, I, you know, idea in the, in the states so, in, in, and, and, uh, and all the members that want to participate. I think that will be very, very crucial uh, as a, a starter when you're looking at what uh, the criteria would be going forward. Right. Professor Munyai, what do you think of that? Firstly, it's a question of avoiding your Western uh, world rhetorics of democracies and authoritarian countries, uh, dividing the world in a very simplistic way. Um, I think the criteria has to do more of developmental BRICS, a people-centered BRICS that consider that the whole world must develop and therefore uh, we need to ensure that they are involved in matters uh, of global governance. It's important. On issues of climate, uh, all countries are had, um, and justice in the world is required, uh, that we all cannot uh, uh, um, develop at the same uh, pace, um, given the advantage that the Western world has had. And therefore, uh, transforming these institutions uh, that are critical to our well-being, uh, the World Health Organization, it has to change the manner in which it responds to crises of pandemic and the lessons that we learned uh, throughout the COVID-19. And these are issues, so food security, uh, the future crisis of future uh, f uh, securities required. And Africa has more to offer with 60% of global arable land. I think we have more. Instead of crying uh, over Ukraine crisis and issues of grain, we have more to offer to the world. So I think BRICS will have that. And lastly, opening up to new issues, uh, digital. How do we govern? What kind of rules and regulation? Uh, these rules and regulations should not be dictated upon the developing country by the West. Uh, they, they, they need to be that democracy from below. And therefore, BRICS, I think, is the best platform to start uh, bringing these new members with that in, in mind. Right. And I think just looking at the very foundations of the BRICS, as Ovigo mentioned, you know, it fosters principles like mutual respect, equality and inclusiveness, uh, differentiating it from other global economic blocks. So, Rwanda, coming to you, how has inequality in global trade relations hurt Africa? And how do you see BRICS fixing these disparities? The inequality, of course, we can see that because, uh, as I mentioned, it's, uh, the BRICS, they are big in terms of the contribution to world GDP and in terms of population. But when it comes to our voice being heard in international summits, uh, we found ourselves we were not heard. So uh, we, we really need to make sure that this time we can come forward together uh, especially now that the focus is at the summit, the focus of BRICS is BRICS and Africa. Uh, African nations, they need to get together. I feel, uh, first of all, they need to make sure that to benefit from this summit, 
that the nation, the countries, they need to make sure that they work on their regulatory framework to be uh, fair and sustainable. Uh, they need to make sure that uh, our tax system, you know, they have been uh, maybe at a disadvantage because they have an inequitable tax system. They are vulnerable to external shocks. They will have no buffers. They're social and political. They have social political corruption. A lot of these countries that are joining have some difficulties with the social political corruption. Uh, we, they, they face poor health and maybe education system, which uh, of course hinders the workforce and the development. Uh, they have poor infrastructure and connectivity. So in these terms, we feel there is a disadvantage and this is where we can get together as African nations through BRICS uh, and maybe uh, come forward and improve that, get more access to the world and get heard. Uh, of course, we're more vulnerable to climate change because usually these countries, maybe they don't have the buffers to protect them from the climate change. It's about time that the BRIC countries together with the African countries have a say and have a lead just like the G7, they have a say in world issues, in world issues and regarding climate change, sustainable development. A lot of the big countries uh, and Africa, they are very rich in minerals and resources and I'm sure that uh, the, with, with this summit concentrating on Africa, we can leash a lot of potential for these economies to grow even more. Okay, so speaking of speaking in one voice, let's talk about the Africa uh, Continental Free Trade Area, which is up and running. And some reports suggest that it has already pushed intra-Africa trade from a paltry 12% to just about 30% within the short time it's been uh, in operation. Ovigwe, coming to you, what does an expanded BRICS mean for the Africa Continental Free Trade Area? And how does it change the dynamics? And also, is there reason to worry? If we look at the AFCFT in terms of, in terms of uh, its implementation, I think to a large extent it's not as, uh, it's not as fast as we would like to see. But they, that, in my perspective, has to do with some of the technicalities around really things, issues like payment, for instance. And the issue of payment is one of, one of the, the topics on, on, the, on the table you know, in the upcoming BRICS summit. So when we're talking about how to really move forward, I think uh, in terms of the issue of trade, ASCFT and BRICS, I think the, the technical the tools and the instruments of trade settlements uh, can, can really be provided or has been strengthened through the, through the BRICS system because these are emerging economies themselves uh, of those really, really strong in terms of economy, in terms of finance, in terms of trade opportunities. You know, with, with African countries. So from that perspective, I think there is a lot of promise uh, with regards to the BRICS summit. All right. So to wind up this discussion, I would like to hear from all of you your expectations for the upcoming BRICS summit, particularly in terms of its likely impact on Africa going forward. Randa, I'll begin with you. I believe the summit, of course, is very important. And I just want to hope that the countries to benefit from this, they have to make sure that they, uh, just as my colleague said, we need to improve on a lot of things in our country itself, in Africa, to make sure we can, uh, for example, the value added of the minerals and of the products, 
that uh, we produce, we need to ensure that we have, uh, we have the regulatory framework to ensure that business is, uh, is easy to do in the country. We need a flexible uh, exchange rate. Uh, we need to enhance and upgrade our infrastructure and, uh, of course, improve the technicalities and the skills of the workforce. So if we can do all that and benefit from this, I'm sure the countries can uh, progress and grow and hence the, enjoy an economic growth. All right. So, Ovig, we're coming to you. What are your expectations? On the, based on what, the, what we have read in, on the, uh, the agenda, issues around uh, discussing you know, common payment system, deepening use of local currencies, and also expansion of the block, I really ex I see this as low-hanging fruit, particularly you know, di uh, designing what the criteria is, what the, fo what the formation and or BRICS is going to look like in, in the future, because that will really give a lot of confidence to uh, aspiring member members uh, and also the, 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 the issue of really, really put laying really clearly how it intends to deepen economic collaboration among itself and create the instruments that will facilitate trade within, within the bloc and of course with, uh, in a way that benefits uh, the, the global south. BRICS, uh, like I've uh, described in some articles, is a middle power magnet. It really enjoys a lot of attention from emerging, emerging countries and to make the attention what it, it has to deliver on some of the most pressing issues uh, on the economic sphere, in the financial sphere, and more, more broadly on political, uh, political and other issues. Right. And finally, Professor Munyai? I'm excited about um, the development of digital currencies, and perhaps the African continent will take advantage to leapfrog uh, into a digital currency and to enable trade and avoid uh, usage of other currencies that comes with the punitive um, sanctions. Uh, at times it comes at a disadvantage of the continent. Um, when we trade among ourselves, even on the African continent, there is a need to prioritize our own currencies and ensure that our own currencies uh, also grow um, and uh, work with uh, in other bigger emerging uh, countries. Uh, in, to diversify the global currencies in the in the global currency basket, uh, and therefore the yuan and Indian currency, Russian currency, Brazilian, and others will be quite important, I think, in in our own trade. And therefore, I think BRICS might start to have conversation around these issues uh, in a way of transforming the way we trade. All right, and that's all we have time for on this edition of Talk Africa. A very big thank you to our panel of experts in Johannesburg, Professor David Munyai, an international relations and foreign policy expert, in Ankara, Ovigwe Egwegu, a policy analyst at Development Reemergence, and in Cairo, Randa Hamid, an economist and chairwoman of OCA's Trading. Remember, you can be a part of this conversation through our social media platforms on Facebook and Twitter. And you can watch this and other editions of Talk Africa on our YouTube playlist. Do join us again next week for more of Talk Africa. From me, Penina Karibe, and the team, KNI Ruby. Until next time, goodbye. Welcome back.
And that was a discussion on the role of BRICS uh, as it relates to African development on a continental level. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, August 20th, uh, 2023. And we're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. Let's take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment of the Pan-African Journal. I can't stand the rain against my window Bringing back sweet memories Hey, window pane Voice of Ann Peoples, and I can't stand the rain. You're listening to the Pan African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, August 20th, uh, 2023, and we are broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, August is Black August, uh, commemorating the centuries-long struggle against enslavement, colonialism, neo-colonialism, and imperialism. And right now, we want to focus on the John Brown legacy uh, in regard to the anti-slavery campaigns of uh, the 1850s. This is a lecture uh, by Professor David Blight at Yale uh, University on uh, the historical circumstances which bred uh, John Brown's campaign to end enslavement of African people in the United States. On a morning in the second week of March, 1857, 
Americans grew up living, they didn't all quite understand it yet, but they grew up living in the land of the Dred Scott decision. And if you were African American, that really meant something. Now, 1857 is, of course, the final year of the playing out of bleeding Kansas, and we'll return to that in just a second. And we're going to discuss mostly today uh, the story of one abolitionist, you could say the most famous abolitionist, certainly the most notorious American abolitionist, John Brown. John Brown never made it easy for people to love him. In some ways, he wasn't very lovable until he died on the gallows. And the gallows made him heroic, at least to some people, and it made him all but the devil to others. There are catalytic events in history, that is, events around which Ideas, forces, movements, problems coalesce. Unfortunately, they often have a lot to do with violence. We'll come back to this point at the end today. But John Brown was far, 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 far more important dead than he'd ever been alive. Poets, songwriters, lyricists, biographers, those who would come to love him, those who would come to hate him, and those who cannot quite figure out what to do with him would never stop writing about him, and we still haven't. And we're in the midst right now of a John Brown biography revival. That's in part because next year is the 150th anniversary of the Harper's Ferry Raid. Almost all major African-American poets in the 20th century attempted their John Brown poem. So did, so did Stephen Vincent Benet in a famous and classic lyric, epic poem called John Brown's Body, published in the 1920s. And embedded in that poem is this verse where Benet, I think, captured the dilemma of John Brown. John Brown's not easy to decide. Was he a heroic revolutionary or a midnight terrorist? This is Benet's verse embedded in a 250-page epic poem. The law is our yardstick, and it measures well, or well enough, when there are yards to measure. Measure a wave with it. Measure fire. Cut sorrow up in inches. Weigh content. You can weigh John Brown's body well enough, but how and in what balance do you weigh John Brown? He had no gift for life, no gift to bring life, but his body and a cutting edge. And he knew how to die. More on old John Brown coming up. The year before John Brown's raid, 
the most important, the most exhilarating, and by far the most substantively interesting political debates in American history would occur in Illinois. And Abraham Lincoln runs for the U.S. Senate against Stephen Douglas, Stephen Douglas, same Stephen Douglas, author of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, parliamentarian genius of the Compromise of 1850, the man most associated with the Democratic Party's theory of popular sovereignty for Kansas and Nebraska and the whole of the West. And this guy, Abe Lincoln, with one term in the U.S. House of Representatives and then a failed attempt at re-election, a guy with very little experience when he ran for president, In the opening of his campaign, he decided to open it in the legislative hall of the old state house in Illinois. On the outside steps of that state house where Barack Obama began his campaign almost exactly a year ago. But inside, Lincoln gave his now famous House Divided speech. Now in your reader, your Lincoln reader, edited by Mike Johnson, you have the House Divided speech but read past the first page. Don't just read that first lyrical, biblical paragraph. Read what Lincoln goes on to argue. The speech is about the Dred Scott decision. The speech is his opposition to the Dred Scott, to the Supreme Court case that had just been passed the year before. The speech is his opposition to the Kansas-Nebraska Act. His speech is a warning it's the warning of a moderate Republican, but nevertheless a moderate anti-slavery free-soil Republican who throws down the gauntlet. In the wake of Dred Scott, this is a sentence on the fifth page of the House Divided speech. Page 68 in your reader, if you look it up. We shall lie down soon, said Abraham Lincoln, pleasantly dreaming that the people of Missouri are on the verge of making their state free. And we shall awake the next morning to the reality instead that the Supreme Court has made Illinois a slave state. Get his drift. Dred Scott decision, in his view, and the view now of most in this new extraordinary coalition, the Republican Party, believe the Dred Scott decision now threatens everybody, north, south, and West with the presence of slavery and slave labor and all that goes with it. It's the opening of that speech, though, of course, that the world always remembers. And we love to return to this in our political culture and our political history whenever we feel great polarization and great division. Are we a house divided again against ourselves? If we could first know where we are and whither we are tending, this is so Lincoln, he kind of meanders in a bit of a homespun way into a very serious argument. We could then better judge what to do and how to do it. We are now far into the fifth year since a policy was initiated in Kansas, Nebraska, with the avowed object and confident promise of putting an end to the slavery agitation. Under the operation of that policy, that agitation has not only not ceased, but has constantly augmented. In my opinion, it will not cease until a crisis shall have been reached and passed 
A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall. But I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. Southerners never forgot that sentence. Either the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it and place it where the public mind shall rest in the belief that it is in a course of ultimate extinction. And those two words, more than anything else, Lincoln had uttered before the Civil War, Southern Democrats would never forget. Or its advocates will push it forward till it shall become alike lawful in all the states, old as well as new, north as well as south. Have we no tendency to the latter condition? Let anyone who doubts carefully contemplate that now almost complete legal combination, piece of machinery, so to speak, and here he's arguing the slave power conspiracy without naming it, compounded of the Nebraska Doctrine and the Dred Scott decision, let him consider not only what work the machinery is adapted to do, and how the machinery, and how well adapted, but also let him study the history of its construction and trace if he can, or rather fail if he can, to trace the evidences of design and concert of action among its chief bosses from the beginning. It's all there. The Republican Party coalition of ideas and fears is all there. Well, what was everybody so angry about over the Dred Scott decision? It's just a Supreme Court decision. Well, I left you the other day hanging in abeyance. Dred Scott was, as I said, a, an old, old man by the time this thing finally got, before the, got on the docket in 1854 finally was argued in late 1856 and early 1857. And when the court brought down its decision, literally two days, I believe, 48 hours after the inauguration of James Buchanan as president in 1857, his case was now, his name would now become almost a household word across the country. Now, a measure of how important this case was as it was developing largely in legal secrecy was the kind of lawyers who argued it. Montgomery Blair and George Tickner Curtis for Scott. Montgomery Blair was the famous Blair family from Missouri. Ant moderate anti-slavery leaning Republicans by this point in time. Member of Congress, George Tickner Curtis, a former Attorney General, a very important, famous trial lawyer. And for the government, another former U.S. Attorney General, Reverdy Johnson, and a U.S. Senator, Henry Geyer, were the lawyers. Reverdy Johnson made the startling statements in the arguments before the Supreme Court and called for a pronoun He made startling statements and he called for a broader pronouncement from the court. He urged Justice Taney, the Chief Justice, and the court 
to render a big decision here and try once and for all to put this, as Lincoln called it, slavery agitation, this whole slavery in the Western territories problem to rest. The Supreme Court, after all, is supreme. Reverend Johnson said, I quote him, this is a case that shall determine whether slavery shall live forever. Forever. Whether preservation of slavery was the only way to preserve the Union. The decision came on the 6th of March, 1857, and here was the decision. Tawney and the majority in the court did not have to go as far as they did. This is now legendary and famous of Tawney developing his majority, and it was ultimately a 6-3 to three decision. Unless you think the Supreme Court doesn't really matter in our political history, please remember the Dred Scott decision. Number one, part of the, there were three parts of the decision. The first was jurisdiction. Did Dred Scott, as a black person, have the right to sue? That's just the first question they were asked to, to settle. The right to sue for anything in a federal court. Could a non-citizen, because he was a Negro, which is the language used then, sue in federal court? Two, did Scott's residence on free soil, remember his four years with Dr. Emerson, his former owner from 1834 to 1838, living in Minnesota Territory, did his residence on free soil entitle him to freedom? Or, if a slave was taken by his owner to free states or free territories, was it the law of the state the master came from that always had jurisdiction? In other words, was it the law of Missouri that took precedent here, or the law of Minnesota? And the third question before the court, they didn't have to take this one up, but they sure did, was Congress's right to determine slavery in the Western territories. The pressures on the court were tremendous, as I said, to move for a broad decision, to try to put this thing to rest. Well, the decision, of course, six to three. And at that point, there were five southern-born justices, five either slaveholders or former slaveholders on the Supreme Court. The sixth judge who voted with them was Greer of Pennsylvania, forming a majority against the three northern-born justices who voted against it. The decision was, one... Scott had no right to sue in a federal court. Two, his residence on free soil did not give him his freedom. The law of Missouri was in place. And third, and by far most important, the court ruled, trying to put the rest now nearly 40 years of this problem that had been compromised this way and compromised that way and argued with that principle and that principle and that principle, as we've seen, it ruled that Congress had no authority to exclude slavery from any U.S. territory because it would be just, as Southerners have been arguing now for two generations, a violation of the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, a person's right to life, liberty, and property. 
If someone ever wants to doubt that American history is about its ironies, just note that language. Therefore, the Missouri Compromise line, that so-called sacred pledge that had now been violated, said Northerners in the Kansas-Nebraska Act, had never been constitutional to begin with. That any attempt to prevent slavery's expansion anywhere would be unconstitutional. Now, Taney not only went that far, but in his opinion, in his own written opinion, he famously went a step further, and he argued, or he said, quote, that blacks, or Negroes, the word he used, had for, I'm quoting, had for more than a century been regarded as beings of an inferior order, so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. Um, some of the most infamous words ever in an American Supreme Court decision. Now, the decision 6-3 to three was issued for this new Republican Party coalition in the North. In some ways this was horrible news, in some ways, it was good political news because nothing crystallized this Republican coalition now quite like this case. They will crystallize in resistance to it, as I just tried to demonstrate from quoting from Lincoln's famous House Divided speech. But most importantly here, I'd argue, I mean, the hook to hang your hat on here is that the Dred Scott decision, it's not once and for all. The war is not necessarily now inevitable contingencies are always there. They're always laying there to happen. But what the Dred Scott decision did almost once and for all is that it destroyed compromise. It destroyed almost any conception now of consensus or compromise. Or put another way, it ruined moderation. Moderate politicians, former Democrats like David Wilmot from Pennsylvania, racist to the core, but free soiler, who's joined the Republican Party. Abraham Lincoln of Illinois. Uh, got his own racial problems, but a much more advanced sort of anti-slavery thinker, but still a moderate. He didn't like abolitionists. He'd never been a member of an abolitionist society and never would be believed there were constitutional restraints on what Congress could actually do about slavery. But it will bring together now some strange bedfellows in this Republican coalition who cannot find anymore any middle ground with their foes. And that's when you see danger. You more than see danger in American political history. It's when the side that loses the debate cannot accept the result. Now, there are many ways to try to demonstrate the importance of that Dred Scott case as it's sunk in. Now, it's sinking in now in the summer of 1857 as a depression hits the country. Wages in, America, north, in northern cities like New York, Boston, Philadelphia, and so on, dropped 40 and 50% in six months. The estimate is that 100,000 workers in New York City were thrown out of work by the end of 1857. 
about 50,000 in Philadelphia. The prices of wheat go plummeting practically overnight. The United States had one of its first significant stock market crashes. So there's a lot to be feared here. And on both sides of this, north and south, they're going to blame each other. Southerners are going to blame northerners for overspeculation, for the overissuing of credit by banks. And of course, they're right about that. There were no controls on banks in these years. There was no Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. You only got that from the New Deal in the 20th century. And Northerners are going to blame Southerners because of their belief in King Cotton and this kind of dependence on a single export. They're going to throw blame all over the place. If you were African American, you now lived in the land of the Dred Scott decision, which had said what? It said you will never be a citizen of the United States. You have no rights, which the white man has to respect, which means the white man's constitution, which means the white man's society. It means you live in the land of the Dred Scott decision that said you have no future in the United States. In the wake of the Dred Scott case, about a month after it, Frederick Douglass gave a speech which was a bit uncustomary for him, uh, in the 1850s, Frederick Douglass was learning his politics. He really was learning. He was getting his feet as a political thinker and even as a politician. He was trying to sidle up to this Republican Party, even though it was a, kind of a half-baked loaf of bread to him. It wasn't real abolitionism. This case drove him further into their laps. But he gave a speech largely to a black audience in the wake of Dred Scott. And so typical of Douglass's brilliance as an orator, he started to discuss how he saw fear on the horizon and trouble and dread on the horizon. And he said he saw what he called the manifold discouragements of my people everywhere I go. I quote him, they fling their broad and gloomy shadows across the pathway of every thoughtful colored man in this country. And then he ended with this lament. I see them. These are discouragements. I see them clearly and feel them sadly with an earnest, aching heart. I have long looked for the realization of the hope of my people, standing as it were, barefoot and treading upon the sharp and flinty rocks of the present and looking out upon the boundless sea of the future. I have sought in my humble way to penetrate the intervening mists and clouds and perchance to see in the distance of time at which the cruel bondage of my people should somehow end and the long entombed millions rise from their foul grave of slavery and death. But of that time, I can now know nothing and you can know nothing and all is uncertain at this point. I walk by faith and not by sight. That's Douglass's beautiful and terrible way of expressing that he's now told as an African-American, you have no future in the United States. All right. So who was John Brown? Um... That picture, I'm going to show you just a couple images here. John Brown, of course, uh, has been 
a fascination for artists, to say the least. I don't want to take too much time with this, but this is a black and white version. I don't know if you can see the rope up here. This is one of the 22 panels in Jacob Lawrence's magnificent series on John Brown. Jacob Lawrence, the great African-American painter, he painted this in the 1930s. And at least 20 of the 22 images in Lawrence's incredible series on John Brown, you will find some image of a crucifix, of execution, a hanging, when I was teaching at Amherst College, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, we had Jacob Lawrence for an honorary degree. And I got to spend like two days with him. It was one of the greatest thrills of my life. And uh, the museum at Amherst managed to get the, the series on John Brown. They had it in a room. And I was asked to do a gallery talk on it. And so I went into the room the day before I was to give this talk all by myself, nobody in there. And I just communed with these terrible images. Sometimes the images sort of crisscross bayonets and sometimes crisscross rifles and sometimes it's literally crosses on the wall in rooms and sometimes it's this image, brown hanging. And I was overwhelmed by it. And the next day I gave this talk and I talked about these images of crucifixes what they hadn't told me is that they were also inviting a busload of fifth graders to come to the lecture. And they also hadn't told me that that morning in the New York Times, in the headline, today this wouldn't even get headlines, there'd been a bus bombing in Jerusalem and 38 people were slaughtered in a bus by a terrorist bomb. And I was going to talk about John Brown, whether he was a terrorist. He didn't walk the fifth graders. Toughest, one of the toughest audiences I ever had. How do you smooth over John Brown and all those crucifixes? With fifth graders on a field trip. Don't even try is the answer. Another favorite image of mine of John Brown is David Levine's. David Levine is the artist for the New York Review of Books. This actually comes from 1969. A series of books had come out in John Brown and I mean, this is an image that kind of fits John Brown to many people. The gun-slinging, you know, kind of <clears throat> wild man. He's got red face, probably, big nose, gun belt, bullets all around him. Kind of saying, don't mess with me. But then, of course, there's Thomas Hovenden's incredible painting of John Brown, which hangs in the... Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Um, I don't have the full version of it. This is the painting that depicts the scene of John Brown leaving his jail cell in Charlestown, Virginia, on the day of his execution. According to the artist, with the hangman's noose already around his neck before he even rode to the gallows, that uh, details. And a black woman comes up with her baby and raises her baby to John Brown and he kisses the child. It's the legend of the kiss, as John Greenleaf Whittier put it in a poem. That didn't happen, but in art anything can happen. This is the gentle savior John Brown. This is the liberator John Brown. This is the martyr John Brown. There are many, many, many John Browns. 
And you're going to start hearing about and seeing a lot more of them next year. Um, oh gosh, is that backward? No, I guess it's not bad. You can't see that very well, but so be it. Well, John Brown was uh, born in Connecticut, uh, Torrington to be exact, and just a ways up the road. Um, he was born in 1800. He grew up mostly out in the Western Reserve, as it was called, of Ohio. He witnessed at the age of 12 the beating of a slave boy. There were remnants of slaves still traversing the north in the 18-teens. He tried divinity school for a little while at the age of 16, but said he quit because of insufficient funds and because all the reading caused him sore eyes. He experienced a confession of faith in his father's church, a congregational, old-fashioned Calvinist congregational church when he was about 16. He married first in 1820. His first wife would die on him. He had no less than 20 children by two wives over some 30 years. Nine of those children would die in infancy. From 1820 to 1855, he engaged in approximately 20 different business ventures of one kind and another in six different northern states, virtually all of which ended in failure and poverty for his family, several of which ended in lawsuits and bankruptcies and one litigation after another, one of which led to debtor's prison for a while. He and his family had lived a poverty-stricken, rolling stone existence across the northern states. Probably what sustained him, and we know a good deal about this, was his religion, his faith, his theology, if you want. He was a kind of orthodox 19th century Calvinist. He believed in such things as innate depravity, providential designs, predestination on some level, and the total human dependence on a sovereign and arbitrary God, and an arbitrary God that sometimes chose certain individual human beings in history to act for him. He believed in an Old Testament kind of justice, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He punished his children and his employees with mosaic vengeance. He had a puritanical obsession with the wickedness of other people. He could be domineering, vain, obstinate, as one friend once put it, impervious to a joke. Probably not a lot of fun to just have lunch with. He gave orders, remembered Brown's younger brother, quote, like a king against whom there is no rising up. He was a thoroughgoing nonconformist. He probably never joined any formal anti-slavery organization, although he went to lots of their meetings. He never joined a political party. We're not even sure if he ever voted. He was a practitioner of what would become known in these years, by, certainly by the 1850s, of a kind of higher law doctrine about slavery. 
an allegiance to God's will and God's law above man's law. To John Brown put simply, slavery represented an unjustifiable state of war by one portion of the people against another. And in a state of war, you do what's necessary to defend yourselves. He believed slavery was, was an evil so entrenched, and he was dead serious about this, so entrenched in America that it required revolutionary ideology and revolutionary means to eradicate it. And it led him, as it has often in history led most proponents of revolutionary violence, that the means can therefore justify the ends. As God had willed so often in his Old Testament that the wicked must die, so too had he willed that slaveholders and their defenders at least deserve the same fate. John Brown came to believe that violence in a righteous cause was like a rite of purification. Now, what did he do? In brief, John Brown's interest in Kansas was intense after the Kansas-Nebraska Act. He was living then, by then, in upstate New York, uh, up near what is today Lake Placid, North Elba, which is indeed where he is buried. Five of Brown's sons went west to Kansas in late 1854 and early 1855. There's an extraordinary exchange of letters between a couple of those sons, especially Owen Brown and his father back in New York. Letters that are saying things like, Father, you must come out here with us. There are slaveholders living over on such and such a creek within two miles of us, Father. Violence is beginning to break out, Father. And so the father came. And John Brown developed in Kansas by early 1855, uh, by late 1855 and into 1856, his own little guerrilla band. They had gone to Kansas to fight in Kansas's border war. Now, I mentioned the other day that it was, on, it was in the spring of 1856. Brown and his men are traveling along a roadway and they get word of the beating of Charles Sumner on the floor of the Senate. I think it was first told to them that Sumner was all but dead. This, to him, great abolitionist senator. And Brown, it appears, went into a frenzy and vowed revenge. And a couple of days later, he and four of his sons, or three of his sons, uh, went and did visitations at three houses along Pottawatomie Creek in eastern Kansas, known to be an area settled by slaveholders or pro-slavery people. And they dragged several men from their houses in front of their wives and hacked them to death, five men to be exact, hacked them to death with these huge broadswords and deposited their bodies on the front steps of their cabins. This was the Pottawatomie Creek Massacre. It touched off even greater violence in bleeding Kansas throughout that summer into the fall of 1856. 
To John Brown, he had kind of tried to even the score because just a few, a couple weeks before that, pro-slavery forces had sacked, attacked, and burned the anti-slavery capital of Kansas, Lawrence, Kansas, burned a hotel and killed six people. Brown, by killing five, said he hadn't quite evened it up. He spent the summer of 1856 in hiding into the fall. In October 1856, he left Kansas and went back east to launch what became the Harper's Ferry Conspiracy. And in legal terms, that's exactly what it was. He launched a fundraising campaign to finance a new and more daring attempt to take this war, as he put it, into Africa. By that he meant the South. It was his hope of attacking ultimately the largest federal arsenal in the United States, which was at Harpers Ferry, Virginia, at the confluence of the Shenandoah and Potomac Rivers, just some 30, 40 miles from Washington, D.C., capture that largest federal arsenal with its thousands of rifles and sidearms and barrels of gunpowder, and apparently launch a growing, developing slave insurrection down through Virginia. And it was his hope, at least, the best we can understand, to engage in, in effect, a violent coup d'etat and take over the state of Virginia. Now, to make a long and dramatic story short enough, his fundraising campaign by 1857 fell by the way in part because of the panic of 1857. But he visited all over the north. He visited the parlors of many famous abolitionists in New England. He sat in Ralph Waldo Emerson's study. People hosted dinners for him. He was this fascinating, romantic, somewhat bizarre old man with, with hair that was whitening and had been out there in Kansas raising hell. They didn't all know the details of the Pottawatomie Creek Massacre. And even when they began to hear them, they didn't want to know too much. But Brown was leading a crusade in Kansas to keep Kansas free soil. Brown was doing in Kansas what a lot of these abolitionists back east could not themselves do, but they were glad he was doing it. Began to raise some money for him. He came down here to Connecticut and he ordered some 200, excuse me, 1,000 spears. He called them pikes. From, a, for, from a, a forgery, which were ultimately delivered in boxes to a farm near Harper's Ferry, labeled famously Beecher's Bibles, huge, heavy boxes, <laughs> labeled Bibles. And then he went back west. He established a headquarters in Tabor, Iowa, a town known to be settled by abolitionists from the east a place where he could begin to recruit men and train them. Then in early 1858, he spent one full month living in the attic apartment of Frederick Douglass's home in Rochester, New York. We have only... Welcome back. And that's what concludes our program for today, uh, August 20th, uh, 2023. 
and we've been broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast. That was a part of our Black August series on this one on John Brown. If you'd like to have access to this program, all you need to do is go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And if you'd like to read uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we're going to close out our program uh, with the legendary uh, organist, jazz organist, Shirley Scott. This is from the album entitled, Now the Time. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.
Thank you. 
Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.